Welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, GCP, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, Ryan, and Peter. Episode 79, recorded on July 15th, 2020. The Cloud Pod Confidential. Good evening, Jonathan, and Ryan, and Peter. Hey, everyone. Hi there. How's it going? And uh, Peter, you uh, you came right back to California just in time for it to become a hotspot nationally for COVID. So welcome back to the city. At least that it ain't Florida. That's true. It's definitely not Florida, uh, which is having a much worse time of it. But, uh, you know, in Florida, they opened Disney World. What did they open in San Francisco? You know, so far, the the main thing they've opened is they, they took out a bunch of the parking spots in front of restaurants and allowed them to build outdoor tables. And they are full. People are tired of social distancing. The restaurant tables are full. Wow. You know, I, I had some complaints on Twitter about you know some, some pictures. Look at these Americans crowding around these tables. I'm like, those people are friends. They're probably socializing together anyway, or there may be families who live together anyway. So, you know, as long as the tables are six feet apart, who cares if there's a group of people at a particular table? Because those people are already sort of isolating themselves in their small social circles. Yeah. And I mean, being to be fair, even though I've been pretty serious about the, the shelter in place, um, when you're out, outdoors makes a huge difference. It's significantly harder to transmit outdoors. So it's like if everybody's outdoors, everyone's keeping to their own little tiny social circles better than uh, at some point. Otherwise, everyone's going to break. It's going to be pandemonium. <laughs> yeah, imagine if they told us back in March that it was, everything was going to be shut down till August, September time. It would have been revolt. Yeah, totally. I still don't know. I'm going all rear window and I'm basically living out of my, you know, my office is staring at the window going, what's going on out there? <laughs> uh, well, that's a that's an interesting uh, choice. <laughs> you know, watch your neighbors. Yeah, flights were fuller too. Actually, coming home, they were about two thirds full, reserving set, reserving middle seats to be open. But like, not like flying out in May when it was thirty people on a big jet. Yeah. Well, I think you also were coming back right after the 4th of July holiday. So I think that might have been a small factor to that. Let's switch to uh, Google Cloud next. Uh, of course, the keynote uh, was dropped uh, as a recorded video on Tuesday. It was about uh, 45 minutes long, probably the shortest major cloud keynote I've ever seen. Uh, Sundar uh, opened it up with his uh, opening remarks about Google and you know his commentary on Black Lives Matter and what's happening in the world with COVID and some of those kind of higher level things and then turned it over to TK. Uh, to talk about all of the amazing things they were dropping, which was not a lot in 43 minutes, as you can imagine. Uh, from a prediction perspective, uh, you know, we we struggled once again on this. Uh, it was uh, a lot of swings and misses. Uh, but maybe, you know, these still might come out this year. We just don't know yet because, you know, we still have eight more weeks of conference to go. Right. Uh, so, you know, any of these could drop at any time, but uh, you just won't get any points for it. But uh you know, we I missed on uh, Cloud SQL. Uh, I missed on uh, granularity and stack driver reports from my Reddit friend. Uh, it was a bummer. Uh, I sort of got close-ish on this one. I don't even give myself a point, though. So uh, Cloud Endpoint Security Protection, they did announce uh, some, some, secure, some secure workload things and ability to uh, keep your data encrypted all the way through processing on VMs. We'll talk about that a little bit. Uh, but I, it wasn't exactly what I meant, so I'm not going to give myself the point on this one at all. Uh, Jonathan uh, hit on new collaboration productivity tools uh, because it was very broad. And uh, so it was almost a given when they, as soon as he mentioned Google Meets, uh, he checked that box. So, <coughs> cheater, <Congrats>. cheater. <coughs> I followed the rules. We, we were all here. We were all here. You could have said no. I could have narrowed it down. 
We could have. We could have. We could have let you. We could have. We could have pulled back, but we didn't. Yeah. Uh, I sort of didn't want to actually, just because I I was afraid that this would be the exact result, and me something broad would actually maybe hit something. Uh, and then Matt, who represented uh, Peter last week, because Peter doesn't do time zones well, uh, you know, got a got a half point, I'd say, for uh, their they did talking Sundar's portion about uh, their commitment to the cloud, and you know, they didn't mention beyond twenty twenty three, so that's why you didn't get a hard point on that one, but. Uh, you know, he did spend at least a good three sentences talking about how important the cloud is to them and how happy they are uh, with the growth and the 10 billion run rate and all that kind of stuff. So not exactly a, a you know, crying out of this is amazingness uh, and we're going to be here after 2023. But, you know, uh, the right messaging, I think, for what that needed to be, because addressing the rumor head on might be a little too direct. And then, Ryan, uh, it was all swings and misses. Sorry, Swing man. and a miss. <laughs> Strike one. Uh, yeah. But you were oh, so you close. Stole like my it. layer seven egress filtering. I totally did. You didn't have any of your predictions. You weren't here to defend yourself, <laughs> and I stole it. Yep. And he was like, I'm going to take the Peter call. Yep. Uh, <laughs> you you were, were, so I didn't I, even hesitate. <laughs> you, know, you know, the thing is, your very first one was tout their amazing BigQuery and ML stuff to help with COVID research. If you just added the word in multi-cloud, you probably would have had that one. Yeah, so, yeah. You know, you the way they reference it, I, don't, I can't give myself a point either, but it was so close. Yeah. Uh, we missed on all honorable mentions. Uh, although there was a, sl- a section where he started talking about, you know, Google Docs, Sheets, and Slides. And, and I was like, oh, this is going to be it. This is where he's going to mention it. And then he didn't. So he just moved right on past. And then uh, we did not hear any numbers for the tiebreaker, so we didn't do the research because we had a clear winner. So I, I don't know what the numbers are, but and they haven't actually announced them. I don't think yet. So that's kind of it. But so let's uh, let's kind of div, dig into it. Uh, but congratulations, Jonathan, your first uh, prediction win. I think first prediction stopped? win ever. Yep. Nice. Right, yeah. well, congratulations to you. Well, well earned point. With no, it's not well earned. Let's not go that far. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I it's sort of fair. Brian, I you know, so the game. <laughs> for those longtime listeners, they know that you know he called shenanigans on my win. Uh, at Google Next last year because I had a very broad topic. So the fact that he won this time <laughs> is sort of fair, fair play. So yeah, that's, that's fair. That's, yeah, true. that's how it goes. Well, uh, heading into Next, uh, they did drop a bunch of stuff onto the world. Uh, I think we talked a little bit of this in 77B, but uh, when someone made the recommendation there'll be a new governance model, I think that was, uh, that was maybe uh, Jonathan or myself. I don't remember. Mm-hmm. But uh, if someone mentioned there'll be, you know, yeah, it was Jonathan. For his third pick, Thomas Curry, and we'll speak about community governance. Uh, Unfortunately, they announced this new thing, this open usage commons. Uh, and so the new open usage common framework is a, to be free and fair open source trademark, uh, which at least is critical to long-term sustainability of open source. Uh, the open, use com- open usage commons is dedicated to creating a model where everyone in the open source chain, from project maintainers to downstream users of ecosystem companies, have peace of mind around trademark usage and management. And that basically means that if you want to use, you know, create a SaaS service around something in the open use comments, you can apply for that as a project and then you would receive approval from the group, uh, which tells me that basically Google is sort of okay with the fact that Kubernetes is very popular and open source, but they're not happy that everyone can call their service something Kubernetes. <laughs> and so they wish they could have trademarked Kubernetes. And so everyone would be basically paying them money to use the Kubernetes trademark is sort of how I see this, but uh, we'll see what you guys think. Uh, to start the foundation, they donated to it uh, the Angular trademark, the Garrett trademark, and the Istio trademark. Of course, by donating the Istio trademark, immediately IBM got super mad. Because <laughs> IBM partnered with them to build Istio, uh, and their understanding was that it would be, just, it would be donated to the CNCF. Uh, you know, so we have no idea what this actually means when they do want to donate to the CNCF. Does the CNCF not get the trademark? It seems like a little bit of a weird thing. 
Uh, there's a couple other things about how impartial this actually is. There are six directors on the group. Uh, two of them are from Google, uh, and then the other two are independent academics, and then the other two are from SADA Systems. Uh, for those of you who are familiar with the Google ecosystem, SADA Systems is the largest Google Cloud partner out there. <laughs> so <laughs> it seems maybe they'd be a little bit biased to doing what Google would like them to do, uh, but that is where we're at with the open usage commons. Yeah, nothing says free and open like trademarking all your products. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, declaring your own framework is not exactly in the yeah. spirit of declaring, you know, declaring an open source framework. Uh, this is this is a terrible move in my mind. Just not not donating these things to the CNCF and creating your own just sort of looks bad. Well, but they're, they're not really providing the governance of the CNCF, right? They're not they're not changing any of that. That's still going to be firmly in IBM and Istio or IBM and Google's control. But you know, if you want to make an Istio service, you better get that licensed. Or you want to make a Garrett service, you better get that license from the Open Cloud Usage Foundation. So I, that's, it, it's a weird way to, you know, to basically try to stay true to open source, but also still have control. And it's a, it's interesting play by them. I don't think it's going to pay off long term. I, I can see the need to protect the brand name, though, or to protect, protect the brand in general. Well, and that is important for any open source project. And so typically when you donate to the CNCF, you do include the trademark as part of that donation to CNCF, mm -hmm. and then they are in control of making sure that it's protected. Uh, but it, it seems, again, I think it's the fact that, you know, it's Elastic Kubernetes service on Amazon. It's Azure Kubernetes service on Azure. You know, it's Oracle Kubernetes. Or like Everyone's mad because it, it basically means that they all are using the same name, <laughs> but just with a little yeah, bit of a bend. It kind of makes me wonder, you know, how Microsoft just jiggle with the licenses to stop, you know, to, to raise the prices of, of Windows and SQL Server and other clouds. I kind of wonder if Google will use this to to, to prevent, uh, you know, Azure and AWS from using those trade names in their own product names. Yeah, potentially. With so, Istio uh, compatibility. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, that's, yeah. what, that's what happens, right? You end up with this confusion. You're like, is this Kubernetes? Is this their offering Kubernetes? And no, it's the, it's the compatible version. Yeah. 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 It'll be interesting to see what uh, the end result of that is and, and how that gets licensed out. So, yeah, I can see a lot more uh, lightning around topics for Peter to say out with, you know, long with something compatibility. Yeah, <laughs> yeah the cloud part now with CNCF compatibility. Ooh. <laughs> There's a show title we should have had. I was going to yeah. say. Yeah. Yep, we can, yeah. go and, we can go back and fix that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, uh, the next one up is uh, Auto ML Tables. This is end-to-end uh, -end workflows on AI platform pipelines. This maybe would have fallen kind of into like a SageMaker-ish type thing, uh, but not quite. Uh, again, it was not on the keynote, so no points for me. Uh, this is Auto ML Tables. lets you automatically build, analyze, and deploy state-of-the-art machine learning models using your structured data. Uh, this is super useful for tasks such as asset valuations, fraud detection, credit risk analysis, uh, customer retention, etc. Uh, and to make Auto ML more powerful, they released an improved Python client library. Uh, ability to obtain explanations for your online predictions, the ability to export your model and serve it in a container, and a view model search progress and final model hyperparameters in cloud logging. So that's a uh, nice improvement to AutoML if you're using that capability. I, I was just thinking to myself, like just the amount of time I spend on the step right before where I would need something like AutoML. <laughs> it's just <laughs> like one of these days I will get to there and I will, I will need this and I will love this and I'll be like, ah, this is, this is amazing. And everyone else will have moved on. Yeah. Moving on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Speaking of which. I'm going to auto ML right to the next thing. Uh, Google is releasing network endpoint groups, uh, which has the unfortunate, unfortunate acronym of NEG, uh, which is a collection of endpoints. NEGs are used as backends for some load balancers to define how a set of endpoints should be reached, whether they can be reached or where they're located. 
Uh, this new hybrid configuration will allow you to configure a publicly addressable endpoint that resides outside of the Google Cloud, such as a web server or load balancer running on-prem, um, or even object storage at a third-party cloud provider. And from there, you can serve static web and video content via the Cloud CDN or server front-end shopping carts or API traffic via that external load balancer. Uh, so this is available to you if you're looking for uh, moving in the front door to your data center, but then still leveraging cloud benefits. Moves like this are super important when you think of, you know, you think about things that are more than just, you know, in a cloud or in multiple clouds, like having these things. This, this really empowers like hybrid cloud and it's not hybrid cloud is no longer just a transition from one state to the next. These are this is what you need to have. And it's pretty, pretty cool. I mean, if you look at Google's uh, stated plan of, you know, making multi-cloud possible and enabling it. They're doing it all over the place with all of their products. It's a chore to manage, though, because it's outside the Google Cloud. It's all IP-based, just like in AWS with the low bouncers supporting you know, IP targets instead of instance targets. You, now, you have, now you've got to manage keeping those lists updated externally. And it just, it just creates um, sort of friction that makes you realize that you should just move everything to the cloud instead. Yeah. Maybe that's the idea. Yeah. <laughs> it's the on-ramp to the cloud. <laughs> yeah. Do, do this hard thing. Yeah. You'll, see the, you'll see the light eventually. Yeah. And this one I'm actually surprised didn't make it the slides because uh, you know, basically they did a survey of C-level executives uh, and they cited complexity as a factor that will have the most negative impact on cloud computing ROI over the next five years. Uh, to help address this complexity, waste, and reduced security and admin toil, Google is releasing the new Active Assist, which is a portfolio of intelligent tools and capabilities to actively assist you in managing complexity in your cloud operations. Uh, has three key activities that it helps you with, uh, making proactive improvements to your cloud with smart recommendations, uh, preventing mistakes from happening in the first place by giving you better analysis and help you figure out why something went wrong by using intuitive troubleshooting tools. With Active Assist as your sidekick, these tasks become simple and fast, helping you shift your time from administration to things like many, many other things. It's so easy. It's so easy a computer can do it. They don't need us anymore. All I see in this is challenge accepted. Like, I will figure out a way. <laughs> But what do they mean by complex? It's just like impossible. Things are only impossible until they're not. I mean, and this encompasses a lot of their stuff like the, you know, recommender AI, automation for auto-scaling, auto-healing, analysis tools for connectivity testing and topology. And, you know, basically the way that you sell your product is being the simpler, better tool is saying everyone else's stuff is too complex. And then I give you a tool to make the complexity go away. It's, it's kind of a very oracle way to sell. Mm. Weird. <laughs> So Feels like we're always trying to make the complexity go away, and all we do is move it to somewhere else, and or not even really get rid of it. Just you know, hide it with a facade and say, "Oh, we we fixed that complexity for you." And and you know, unfortunately, C-suite doesn't always understand that. Yeah, you know, it's a good marketing sell. It's a good good mm -hmm. Oracle move. So yeah, congratulations to them. Well, let's move on to the uh, keynote itself. Um, so you know, I don't I don't know if you guys had a chance to watch the full keynote. I finished it uh, before the show. Uh, it was kind of boring. <laughs> I almost made it. I almost made it. I got about. 10 minutes into TK and I, I, I sort of just drifted off into something else. I was sleepy. Yeah. Could not do it. You know, it starts out with Sundar and his, you know, probably his estate <laughs> you know, recording himself in front of his, his grapevines and then moves into, you know, TK and his office in front of a, a very boring background. And as you know, there's a lot of things you can do with video editing to make things a lot more interesting, you know, fly-ins and graphics and, you know, this is all pre-recorded. So why aren't you trying to, you know, jazz these up a little bit? Uh, you know, clearly they need the assistance of, uh, you know, marketing <laughs> in these things in the future. But he was unfortunately sued uh, and can't work for them until 
he clears that non-compete agreement. <laughs> so his rat uh, was not able to help them with their yeah. uh, their particular issue. But uh, so you know, he the first one he started out with is a new uh, assured workloads capability. Uh, this is. Uh, for the government, uh, it's currently in private beta and has helped you serve your government workloads without the compromise of traditional government clouds. Uh, the service simplifies the compliance configuration process and provides seamless platform compatibility between government and commercial cloud environments. With the assured workloads for the government, Google Cloud customers can quickly and easily create controlled environments where U.S. data location and personnel access controls are automatically enforced in any of our U.S. cloud regions. Assured workloads for government helps government customers, suppliers, and contractors meet the high security and compliance standards of the DoD the FBI, and the Federal Risk and Authorization Management Program, or FedRAMP, for those of you out there. Uh, so come the things that come with assured workload, the automatic enforcement of data location and access uh, to make sure that you don't have non-U.S. Uh, citizens accessing this data, has built-in security controls to reduce the risk of accidental misconfigurations, and then automatic enforcement of product deployment location uh, to restrict the deployment of new resources to specific Google Cloud regions based on organizational policy, and then, of course, uh, assured workload support coming to uh, in Q4 for receiving premium support from a U.S. person in a U.S. location 24-7 with a 15-minute target SLO for P1 cases. Uh, so you talk to American all the time, everywhere. That sounds kind of like GovCloud, right? GovCloud in every region. But that's, yeah. the, that's the big difference, though. So, like, you know, the, the move to public cloud is removing that hardened exterior, right? So it's... And, so with GovCloud, it was sort of just reimposing that. We have our own GovCloud region, and no one accesses it unless you're special, and you've signed off, and you've given blood, and we've tested you. And so I like this move now where we're, it's not a special region. It's not a high-walled garden. We're just meeting the requirements, and we're telling you how we're meeting the requirements, and we're exposing that to give you the security, because that's going to bleed out into non-governmental workloads, where it doesn't need to be completely isolated to be compliant. Yeah, I think it's pluses and minuses. Like, it, you know, now you have to rely on whatever controls the Google has to keep non-U.S. citizens out of these systems, and that's why they're giving you the automation to prevent that from happening. But I still think there's some risk to it, especially when they, you know, they announce the next feature and forget that it doesn't work on other clouds. But you know, whatever. <laughs> so the uh, the next one is uh, they're calling this BigQuery Omni. Uh, this is a flexible multi-cloud analytics solution that lets you cost-effectively access and securely analyze data across Google Cloud. Amazon Web Services, and eventually Azure, uh, without leaving the familiar BigQuery user interface uh, UI. Uh, this sounds pretty cool on the surface until you realize that it requires Anthos under the hood. So you get that nice, lovely bill uh, to run Anthos. Uh, but this is uh, basically the ability to uh, deal with that data gravity problem of how do I use tools in Google on top of Amazon or Azure when my data lives in those systems. This is great uh, open-the-door opportunity for Google to get you to see the value of BigQuery. And then, you know, hey, when it doesn't perform so well, maybe you should just move your data to our cloud. Yeah. So mm -hmm. that's very good. Go Time it takes to run one, one query. You, you've already migrated. Yeah, so this is pretty great. Uh, this is available for you in alpha if you are interested in this capability, although realize it is an on-ramp to the Google Cloud. Uh, and there is a form you can apply for this capability right away. But it does basically run uh, on top of Anthos, a uh, set of containers that are basically the distributed memory shuffle tier that makes BigQuery magical. And that all runs in your data center, too, which is kind of nice. Uh, so this is uh, pretty powerful if you want it, uh, and definitely a big upgrade for those using BigQuery. And then the uh, the big the big one that yeah they said is as big as Anthos uh, in the keynote. I don't know that I agree, but you know we'll see what you guys think. Uh, the next one is the confidential VM, uh, which are now in beta, is the first product in the Google Cloud confidential computing portfolio. Confidential VMs are designed to help their customers protect sensitive data, but we think it will be especially interesting to those in the regulated industry. Google Confidential Computing builds on top of a silo, 
an open source framework for confidential computing with a focus on to ensure confidential computing environments are easy to deploy and use, offering high performance and are applicable to any workloads you choose run in the cloud. Uh, the confidential VM features include support for the, uh, actually it only works on the AMD Epic Gen 2 CPUs that have the SEV or Secure Encrypted Virtualization features. <laughs> because Intel uh, sucks, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> your data will stay encrypted while it's in use. Index queried or trained on with encryption keys generated in hardware per VM and not exportable. Uh, confidential computing unlocks new scenarios like organizations being able to share confidential data sets and collaborate on research in the cloud while preserving the confidentiality. Uh, so this is really for you to use like a third-party SaaS tool to be able to access your data, do all this magic to it, uh, but never actually give them the data to do the work on. So things like Snowflake could use this or other tools, uh, which are kind of interesting. The transition to confidential VMs is a seamless. Uh, all GCP workloads you run in VMs today on top of AMD <laughs> is just one checkbox away from getting this capability. Uh, but you, know, you never want to run a good press release with details like you know, Intel doesn't support this. Uh, and then confidential VMs are natively running on top of shielded VMs, which are their hardened OS images. Uh, so this is apparently revolutionary. The biggest thing since Anthos on the Google Cloud space. What do you guys think? Uh, are you sure we're allowed to talk about it? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Luckily, I don't have a confidentiality agreement yeah. on this, so yes. I, I wish they'd just do this for everybody, right? Why, why make it a checkbox? Why make security a checkbox? Well, maybe because of the, the AMD limitation. Yeah. I mean, the, the revolutionary part about this is that, you know, historically we've looked at data encryption in two places, right? In flight and at rest. And so this is throughout the pipeline. Um, and so it, it's cool. I I do sort of like I'm waiting for like the other shoe to drop or for the I keep waiting to be convinced that this is amazing because it is sort of like this is neat. But that's all I got. I just it's my brain isn't big enough to understand if the data is encrypted in memory and in transit and at rest when it's unencrypted to be able to actually process it. Yeah, so your your lack of understanding on this is because you have never heard of the Asylo framework, oh, which, by the way, yeah. Google wrote yeah. <laughs> and published. Uh, but basically, that is why they're able to do this. And it, it basically, you know, I think actually AWS mentioned some of the capabilities around this as well, the ability to keep things more encrypted in memory, uh, not to the level of this announcement, but they had something kind of similar uh, not that long ago. But, uh, you know, if you understand the Asylo framework, you're basically rewriting a lot of the logic and a lot of the access patterns for how you do deal with data. And that's where a lot of that magic that you're not understanding, Peter, comes from, is that in the silo framework. I'm not buying it. <laughs> I, <laughs> all right. I mean, I, you, you don't have to. I mean, I just, I'm not actually buying it because I don't have a need for it. <laughs> <laughs> I just visited asylo.dev and uh, their builds are failing on GitHub. <laughs> it's a oh, bad sign. No. That's not good. <laughs> uh, well, that's, that's it for the keynote, guys. Like, I mean, Woo. we talk about reInvent and we have like 16 pages of notes and we have to go through a lot of stuff. Uh, yeah. You know, I think the the virtual sessions across eight weeks is the reason why we don't have just a massive amount of stuff. So I'm, I'm curious to see what happens in future weeks if we uh, get more interesting things announced uh, that we can talk about, you know, for the next eight weeks. Uh, but right now, I, I'm kind of underwhelmed. I would have thought they would have put some effort into making it, um, you know, a bit compelling at least the first week to make people want to come back the second, third, fourth, fifth weeks. Yeah, you think so? Uh, something about executives and their, you know, their vineyards uh, doesn't really get me excited about coming back for the next one. Well, you, know, you didn't see the gold-plated bathroom right behind the camera, so that's true. I did not. <laughs> uh, the other thing they announced uh, on yesterday, uh, Tuesday, uh, for the keynote was uh, the C two C or the Google Cloud Customer Connect uh, or Customer Community System, 
So this is a new independent community for their customers. Uh, they're calling it C2C for short. Uh, C2C is a platform that will bring their together IT executives, developers, and other cloud professionals from the Google Cloud customers across the globe. Uh, customers who join C2C will receive exclusive networking opportunities as well as visibility into the Google Cloud ecosystem with benefits such as the opportunity to make connections and learn from the other customers, including sharing knowledge and best practices with virtual and in-person events when COVID's over, expanding access to Google Cloud experts and content such as knowledge forums, white papers, and methodologies, and early and exclusive access to Google Cloud product roadmaps with opportunities to provide feedback and act as a customer advisor. Uh, today, they are inviting customers in North America and EMEA to join the C2C, and we look forward to expanding the community to more regions and more customers in coming weeks and months. Anybody join yet? I, I don't actually know if I could join because I, I don't have much more than the free tier on Google right now. I think you could join. I joined. Ah, did you? Have you already gotten very access to all that amazing stuff? Uh, I got a wonderful welcome email. It was very eloquently put. Very warm little welcome. Yeah, that's it. Well, I'm signing up as we speak. <laughs> so I will soon I will soon be part of the cool kids club too, I guess. They didn't ask for like a Google project or a master billing account, so I, I think they're just inviting anybody. Which then why would you give that you know, I, I like the idea of having a community. I mean there's a bunch of informal communities that exist out there in the world for um, Amazon, you know, from our Slack channel where we have people come in and to ask us questions and, and you know, talk with us really, uh, as to OG AWS or the Discord <laughs> channels for Amazon Web Services. There's lots of ways to get informal community stuff as well as meetups and things that really are sponsored by Amazon in a lot of ways. So you can get access to this kind of stuff through those paths. Uh, but this is the first time I've actually seen one come from the vendor itself, which I, I would actually like to see from Amazon and Azure, I think. I agree. Does, does Amazon have to, though? It sort of happened despite Amazon. Azure, I think, would benefit from this. But, uh, you know, again, as it's the market leader, there are those communities. Is it disruptive to go and do that? I don't know. I don't know. Time will see. I'll let you know uh, as I get emails from them in the future, I'm sure. <laughs> well, that's it for Google. I, I thought we'd have a whole show on Google and we would punt poor Amazon and Azure to next week. And unfortunately, <laughs> that's not the case. But, uh, you know, it's interesting uh, techniques that both of these cloud providers did. So, uh, you know, with Google Next, you know, sometimes vendors will basically say, you know, look, I'm not going to announce anything big and splashy during my competitor's event. You know, just give them the limelight for that week. Others, uh, you know, basically announce a ton of stuff. And so we have both examples. Uh, Azure took a took a nice quiet week and didn't announce much. We'll talk about that later. And then Amazon, you know, just dumped everything into the world. <laughs> so much content. Some of it maybe not quite as uh, fully baked as I think it maybe should have been. But, uh, you know, they definitely made a splash and took up some new cycles away from Google uh, this week, especially with that lackluster Google Cloud Next conference. I think that was a little bit easy to do, too. So the first one from Amazon. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Especially since it's online. I mean, there's an actual opportunity to steal Mindshare because it's only online versus right. announcing stuff and nobody sees it because they're, the they're at the conference. Yep, exactly. It's like a poker game, though. I mean, I, I think uh, maybe Google hung back and didn't announce anything, hoping that Amazon would dump all their stuff and then next oh. week they'll announce a bunch of stuff. You know, so oh, you're they're, overthinking they're it. Oh, wow. It's like, <laughs> no way. No way. The volume of things from Amazon this week, they were just insane. Yeah. Are you thinking what I think you're thinking? <laughs> I think I am. <laughs> exactly. Hey everyone, Jonathan here. I just wanted to take a minute to thank the cloud consulting gurus at Foghorn for helping make the cloud pod possible. These folks truly get it. Cloud consulting experts since 2008, they are premier tier partners with AWS, Google Cloud Platform Silver, and Microsoft Azure partners. From multi-cloud to containers to moving full production workloads to the cloud under the tightest compliance, Foghorn's team of full-stack cloud engineers have been there, done that, gotten the t-shirt, and are ready to share their experience with you. 
If you're in the market for some talent to supplement your team, visit www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod. www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod. Foghorn, the promise of cloud delivered. Uh, so the first one is uh, you can now create EBS snapshots from any block storage data, uh, such as your on-premise volumes, volumes from another cloud provider like Google or Azure, and existing block data stored on S3 or even on your own laptop. Uh, AWS customers using the cloud for DR use cases of on-premise infrastructure um, always wanted to answer how to simply transfer their data from on-prem to AWS. Uh, and they've been using tools like Cloud Endure, which uh, AWS bought a few years ago to help simplify the story. Uh, but, you know, if you didn't have that, it was a very complicated process where you basically copied the EBS vault. You know, you basically took a backup, you copied it to S3, you did this massive conversion horror story, and then you threw away all this hardware and you're like, man, it took 25 hours just to get the DR capability up to get the snapshot so I could actually DR. I'm not sure how great this is. Uh, but to make this more manageable, these new APIs uh, make it easy to directly manage EBS snapshots. Uh, so these are initially there's a read and a diff API that they announced at reInvent. But now the third one, which is the most important, is the write API, uh, yeah. which allows you to write snapshots directly to the EBS snapshot control plane. Uh, once they're created, you can copy them, share them between Amazon accounts and have them available for fast snapshot restore or create your EBS volumes from them. Uh, this is a very much a building block right now, I'll tell you guys. Uh, you <laughs> yeah. can't do much with it. <laughs> there's no there's no way to like go and use your laptop and say, I want to back it up magically. You're going to need to wait for a uh, third party to basically uh, do all that work for you because this is really just an API. Uh, but it's still kind of cool. I like the idea of it, I like the concept of it. And so we, uh, we talked about it here. Yes, yeah, it's, it's definitely going to be the API that the existing third party that's been working with Amazon on this tool for six months is going to leverage and launch the thing in a couple of weeks, most most likely. Is it cloud yeah, I, Well, no, the cloud endurer is who they probably... Yeah, you know, oh, okay. I assume they got first right. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I'd love to see uh, for like my Synology NAS. I'd love to be able to take snapshots on it and send them to EBS. That'd be kind of awesome. Yeah, yeah. I like the idea of a laptop backup that way too. Like, totally. There's so many use cases this actually enables. Um, I'm really curious to see where it goes from here. Yeah, I thought about you know writing a thing immediately, and so I'm sure that some you know even if. You know, of course, the major vendors are going to do it, but you know, a lot of a lot of people are going to take it on their own to utilize this API as well. I thought about it, but I'm way too lazy to actually do it, so it won't <laughs> it won't happen. But you know, I could just, now. Let me just add it to a list of things that we'd do if we had time, and then when somebody else does it, we say, "Yep, I knew that was a good idea." <laughs> when Ian writes a tool in three weeks, yeah. McKay, and he's we're like, "Oh, see, Ian did it for yeah. us. Thanks, yeah, Ian. Exactly. It's really great." Yeah. Uh, well, the next one is uh, the first major update to the Amazon Well-Architected Framework, uh, the first one being published in 2015. Of course, for those of you familiar with it, uh, you know what it is, but those are not. Uh, there's five key pillars, including operational excellence, security, reliability, performance efficiency, and cost optimization. Uh, these are major updates to how you architect and design your systems to take advantage of the cloud. Uh, and this has driven a lot of the patterns that we see now in cloud-native architecture and cloud-native design. Uh, and this is all available to you today, as well as they've updated the well-architected tool to take advantage of these new updates and capabilities in the framework. So if you are looking at uh, what the latest and greatest uh, is now, five years later, uh, check it out. They've done, they did a round before. I mean, I think they did a round before because the, the, the questions changed between the internal tool we used to have to use and then when they stuck it in the console. Mm. Well, that's for the well-architected review. That's the war, uh, yeah. which is based off the well-architected framework. So they have made some adjustments to those questions to get yeah. to better, you know, to make it more programmatic in the console. But, you know, these are actually like pattern changes that they recommend based on, you know, new things like 
Dynamo, MSK, other services that maybe didn't exist when they first launched us in 2015. I think the biggest changes for operational excellence are around the use of organizations now. That That's finally baked enough to, to build into the well-architected framework. And I will be reviewing this and providing my feedback to Brian Carlson. That's awesome. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah. The, the huge change that I remember uh, was the con- this. It's going to be interesting to see their their, their advice around um, when to use a new another account. Right there was there was a time when the advice was the account is a data center. You don't have a hundred data centers. You have four. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. That that didn't last very long. That did it. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that's why we needed orgs, right? Yeah. Well, I, I, you always wonder if they'll ever come out with the idea of projects like uh, Azure and Google have. That'd oh, be an interesting pivot. But I, I can't imagine it would be a massive overhaul of like several core tenants of their entire cloud strategy. So I don't yeah. know how you'd ever do it. I think unless the networking. They, unless they launched uh, Amazon Web Services Gen 2, which then right. all the vendors would just rip them apart for. Right. So I don't think they'll do that. Our Oracle just did that. <laughs> no, they're well, like just for four. And how did that go? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, even even things like API limits, which are all tied to accounts or account regions, it, it just it starts to make less and less sense when you start to um, you know get, get hundreds of accounts. Like you, you force to create accounts just to get around API limits, and I, I get it restricts blast radius for problems in a single account for them, but it just makes it a chore for the customers. Yeah, just charge for API calls. It's so simple. Yeah, don't do that. Don't do that. <laughs> that, that, would, that would screw me. Yeah. <laughs> They're charged for enough other things, but they don't need to charge for API calls. But I mean, instead of just saying you can't have any more in one account, just charge a billionth of a penny for each one, and yeah, yeah. let me make the choice. choice. It's true. It would. It would. That would work. I mean, because it's not stopping me, right? It's not causing me to be hard down, but it's also going to be influencing my design. It does make yeah, sense. Yeah, and it's breaking. Yeah, it's it's making people do what are otherwise bad design decisions in order to get around the API limits. And then there's other people who are stuck in single accounts because of huge amounts of automation they wrote way before anyone with this limit was even documented at Amazon. And, uh, and you know, they're stuck. They're stuck with the, You have no choice. So, yeah. Charge for them. All right. New revenue stream, too. <laughs> we'll, we'll reduce your network costs, but they will increase your API costs. That's yeah. That's a little pay for it. Well, last month uh, here on this very program, you heard me stumble through CD Kubernetes or CDKAS, uh, which is a terrible name for a tool. Uh, and apparently, Google, you know, AWS has decided to uh, go to the next step and make it more complicated with CDKAS Plus, which is a library built on top of CDKAS. I look forward to the next version of this, which will be the CDKAS Plus Plus. And then that continues down for the end of time. Uh, this is a rich intent-based class library for using the core Kubernetes API. It uh, includes a handcrafted construct that maps to native Kubernetes cl- objects and exposes a richer API with reduced complexity. Uh, and the blog post will give you a deep dive into the real Kubernetes application using CDK 8S from building guiding principles like desire state, uh, don't repeat yourself, boilerplate, cognitive load, and reusability. Uh, I still don't know if this is actually an amazing tool or not, but the naming could be improved. Handcrafted. I'm going with C12. I'm going with C12. <laughs> yeah. CD Kates. CD Kates Plus. CD Kates Plus. Is yeah. CD Kates Plus One next? I don't know. Handcrafted is such a weird term to use unless they're right about to launch something that just creates things without any hands at all. It's handcrafted. It's like yeah, finished it's, by it's, hand. Yeah. It's artisan now. It's yeah. it's it's basically you know. <laughs> Welcome to the artisanal cloud. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a show title for you. 
well, uh, if someone's out there using this, I'd love to hear from you. Uh, so ping us on our Slack channel or uh, me on Twitter or whatever, uh, however you send messages. Uh, reach out, but uh, I'd love to hear how you're using it and how you think this is changing the world. Because I, you know, a lot of things they announce, like CDK and some of those other things, you see people immediately jump on the bandwagon on Twitter. This one I really just haven't seen a lot of noise about, so I'm I'm a little curious about it. How do people sign up for our Slack channel? Uh, they go to our website, theclappot.net, uh, and hit the Slack button, and then they will get a lovely uh, link to go sign up. Oh, cool. I should do that one of these days. You probably should. Yeah. <laughs> and we talk about you during the show. No, you shouldn't, because I'm I'm just posting bad memes about you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, uh, you know, I don't know if you knew about this, Peter, but when you're using uh, Amazon's fantastic services like Koguru Profiler or Comprehend, Lex, Poly, Recognition, Textract, etc., uh, you know, Amazon has a tendency to take a small portion of that data and then go use it to retrain their models to make the product better. What? Uh, a very, yeah, this is a very common thing. Uh, you know that they were doing this if you'd read the terms of service, um, but uh, most people don't read those. They just click right on through, which is why I knew you hadn't read it. <laughs> I hadn't read it. Uh, but apparently, you know, you could have previously reach out to support and tell them, hey, our data is more sensitive than that. We can't let you take it and go train your models with it. It's ours. Please don't touch it. So you'd open a support taste and then they would basically turn that off. Which worked for that one account, but then failed you completely when uh, your next account needed to do machine learning as well. Exactly. Uh, so to fix this problem, uh, they've now given you a new organizational policy to opt out uh, all of your accounts or single accounts or single services. Uh, so you no longer need to open that support case and forget about it uh, now in the future. So if you do have that data sensitivity thing, and I just surprised you with this whole announcement, uh, you do have a bad day with your auditors heading out your way. <laughs> but uh, you do get this enabled <laughs> right away. Uh, so you're not sending data to uh, Amazon to do machine learning. Also, the nice thing, too, is if you had data sovereignty issues, uh, like let's say you were in Germany for server reasons and you're using TextTrack, which I actually don't know if it's there, but if it was, uh, they potentially are taking that data and moving it to the U.S. to teach their model before they distributed that, which would be a GPDR violation. So uh, keep that in mind, too. This should be turned on immediately if you have these concerns. And the easy-to-use should be done with, like, large hand-wavy air quotes because mm -hmm. I went around. The minute I found out about this, I'm like, oh, oh, no. And then I'm going to go enable this for everything. Turns out it's not that easy to define a policy that applies to your entire org on these things. They have not made this a giant easy button or an opt-out click box. It is very much, you know, writing a, an IAM policy in in a different syntax than I am. And Hexadecimal? <laughs> yeah, is it just hex? You got to write it in hex? It's a, bi it's a binary code. You need to do yeah. zeros and ones. And uh, they give you, like, you know, the organization's UI is is terrible. Um, and so it is sort of one of those things where you, you know you're not going to get any help there. And since it's so new, there's nothing really uh, for guidance on here. And so you really have to stumble through and see what works and get the error messages. So it's not easy to use. And it's I really wish there was a giant opt-out button. Yeah, and they did not. It, you know, be even better is if it was just off by default. Yeah. And then when you went to TextRack for the first time, it'd say, "Hey, um, would you be okay if we used your TextRack data to improve our models?" And be like, yeah. "Well, I'm just checking something stupid." Then yeah, I don't mind. <laughs> Versus, you know, hey, I'm I'm scanning something very confidential like your tax returns, and I would like to not have you take that and use that data for other purposes. Yeah, no, you're right. But uh, you know, I shouldn't have to do anything. You shouldn't have to do anything. That should just be. And then you know, you could basically have a, a policy that overrides the ability to say yes, but. You know, at least if it's prompting you, at least maybe take a couple minutes to think about it mm -hmm. <laughs> versus it just automatically happening. Who would ever say yes? Like, what's the benefit of saying yes? Which is why they don't do it, right? Because yeah. no one would, right? No the one benefit's would. all Amazons. Yeah. I mean, depending on what it is and, and the data set, I mean, there are things that you potentially don't care. Like, if you're 
taking pictures of cats and you want to you know basically say this is a surprise cat or a, or a sad cat i don't know that i care if that gets into their model <laughs> you might you might but you probably don't <laughs> it's cats but maybe you do who knows you don't want other people to know that you're taking pictures of cats, maybe. Well, they, they, that all gets anonymized out, so they, they don't know whose data they're looking at when they get centralized to their machine learning stuff. Well, I say it gets anonymized out, but the, the, the source may be anonymized, but the content is not anonymized. That's necessarily true, yeah. So that's why things like you know W-2s or tax returns or bank statements are super critical in this, that they're opted out because they are very sensitive PII data. And they do say that they do some type of you know anonymizing of it. They try to remove PII data from the data set, but like there's... So many ways you can mess that up. <laughs> so pay me, you know, just pay me per bit that you want. Well, you need to build these models to understand the documents so that they're anonymizing and anonymize things correctly. It's like a I, I, I <laughs> chicken agree. and egg thing. It, it's chicken and egg <laughs> problem for sure. Something tells me the auditors aren't going to buy this from me. Like be like, no, 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 no. It's it's all anonymized by Google. Uh, How do you prove that? Um, I can't. I yeah, that's that's the that's the end of the day. That's the biggest problem. I mean, if you already trust AWS to to run the system that does the the, the extract job on your on your workload, then why do you not trust them to take the the metadata or to to run those through simulations and things and to, to to improve the service itself? I mean, either you trust them or you don't. Well, it's not really part of the shared security model, the data custodianship. Like everything in when you use one of those services, you own the data all the way through. So it is one of, it's a it's a tricky little bit. And I, well, I understand trust is one thing, but proving of that trust and and basically signing that you do trust and you know that it's safe is different. And that sucks. I mean, I guess it, it becomes more of a problem if if they take those images and then mechanical turk them out to thousands of people and say, "Hey, is this a social security number or is this yeah, somebody's really? is, is this somebody's birthday?" <laughs> but how do I prove that they're not doing that? How do I how do I sign that I have full control? And that's really the issue. Mm. custodianship whether yeah. they're doing it or not is really of no consequence to me you know unless i get busted but yeah you know i can't really attest to it otherwise i guess it's just it, the only way you can you, you can um, attest to it is contractual terms no, that's the problem they don't want to do contracts for everybody <laughs> well moving on to uh, more interesting things well unless you're in compliance and you're screaming right now then yeah <laughs> <laughs> this is not as exciting for you. All the people uh, in compliance already passed out on the on the yeah, floor yeah. right now, so they're gone. Yay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, we talked about uh, the recent partnership between Docker and uh, Azure here on the show a couple weeks ago at uh, DockerCon, a couple other things. Well, apparently that made Amazon pretty jealous uh, of all that Azure love that Docker was giving them. And so they had now partnered with Docker to make it easier to manage containers running on Amazon ECS uh, Fargate directly from your Docker tools. Uh, using Docker Desktop and Docker Compose, you can now deploy containers on ECS using the Fargate launch type. Uh, and previously, there was no single tool for customers to go from a container running on Docker to running an Amazon Web Services. This new ECS functionality in Docker Desktop lets customers complete the journey from local Docker Compose application to AWS with all without leaving the Docker CLI. Uh, this also can leverage C uh, service discovery and ALBs uh, to handle all of your requests from your clients. So pretty neat. That is really cool because usually it's the patents the other way around. You know, they've got their service in the cloud, and and people just beg for local testing abilities. And this this just turns the tables. And now you you've got your local Docker containers, and you want to run them in the cloud at scale. One command line, it's done. That's great. And this has a lot of the advantages that you know Kubernetes offers a lot, or GKE, I should say, and and AKS. Um, just because you know, it's if you're operating on the command line, you don't necessarily want to instantiate a cluster and deal with all the, all the other stuff you just want the thing to work and run and this allows that which is great maybe it's the it's sort of 
it fills the whole of Docker Swarm in a way. You know, you can you can now compose services in uh, in Fargate, even though Swarm doesn't right. exist. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, hosted containers. I mean, which, you know, Swarm didn't do uh, itself, but you know, that's it's offers the same sort of capability. Well, they already have Kubernetes kind of built into Docker desktop now, so like, there's just one more option to deploy your containers in a workload on Amazon. I think it's I think it's nice. I'm glad to see it there, and it's nice to see that kind of integration. Hopefully, continue to develop it and, and build more stuff. Well, the other uh, other thing. Oh, by the way, all these Kubernetes and container things all came out of their container day, which was last week. <laughs> just so you know, that's why there's quite a bit of container news this week uh, from AWS. But uh, the next one is the Amazon Copilot, AWS Copilot. This is a CLI tool that helps customers develop, release, and operate containerized applications on Amazon Web Services. With a single command, AWS Copilot creates all the infrastructure and artifacts required to run a production-ready service on ECS and Fargate, including the task definition, the image repo, and the Amazon resources like load balancers and deployment pipelines. Uh, with AWS Copilot, you can focus on developing applications rather than setting up your infrastructure. Uh, and one of your services can be up and running with Copilot uh, with built-in commands taking advantage of the databases and F3 buckets all available to you. So there you go. Uh, I kind of think like, this is sort of like Cube Cuddle, but for ECS. I don't know about you guys, but that's how I kind of summarize this down to a simple sentence. <laughs> so I found myself naturally comparing this to SAM, but I mean, that also might be that I'm, you know, neck deep in a SAM project that I'm trying to work on right now. And so like it really, for me, highlighted the differences between like the serverless model and the container model which is the serverless is much more like, you know, stand everything up, run a test, and it all goes away versus the container container infrastructure. You're really trying to just make it easy to launch and so that you're only focused on what's the, the contents of that container. So this is sort of an interesting juxtaposition between those two worlds. I do think that this is sort of, I think a lot of the value of Kubernetes is that cube CTL. I can't call it cube cuddle. Um, <laughs> cannot uh you know just being able to to quickly launch something and quickly interface with the service and and have it go away and so this really does add a lot of that functionality which is which was a little clunky before for ecs so this is a great addition yeah, all the details right as far as what it does i mean it makes it sound great single command you create everything i need including all of the aws resources but someone's got to do the hard work in the back end to figure out what those resources are right just, just like kubernetes yeah it's always <laughs> that's the thing right kubernetes is this promise of ma developer magic but there's there's an ops team and a lot of them that are hammering around in the back end to try to make this work i learned today that facebook's cluster orchestration um tool is called tupperware mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. how do they get away with calling it tupperware <laughs> <laughs> it is a brand name, isn't it? It is because it's an internal tool that's not for sale. Right. That's wow. Yeah. Yeah, they use yeah, it in their press releases and everything else. It's 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 like if it, it, it also it's probably because it's not creating brand confusion because it's in a different it's not competitive in any way. A different kind of container. Okay. <laughs> well, it is a different kind of container. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's I mean, Tupperware is a good. very long time. Yeah. Lightning round. <laughs> No early points. No early points. No early I'm points. I'm biasing the judge early. It's fine. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's, nice. It's fine. Well, the, uh, the next one uh, from Container Days was the uh, EKS 1.17 is now available, which means that they are only one major version behind on Kubernetes, finally. So the, uh, the long promise of uh, they're going to pick up the pace has seemed to uh, come out. So uh, last time we talked about 1.16, 
that rolled out on April 30th. This rolls out uh, two and a half months later to get 117. So, and I think they just dropped 118 technically in June. Uh, so it's not like they're majorly behind yet. So we'll see how fast they can catch up and get on 118. Uh, but maybe we're we're past the days of uh, Amazon just holding on to supportability as as uh, kind of not a, a real feature. <laughs> but uh, um, there are several improvements in uh, 117 for you: cloud provider labels, uh, resource quota scope selectors, tainted nodes by condition and finalizer protection, as well as the CSI topology. Uh, and ability for Windows Container Run as username in beta. So those are great features if you want them. I, I assume they'll always be one version behind because they they can never they, they'll never want to be ready to launch a version which is not been released yet. Right. So I mean this it's, this is as current as they're going to get ever. It's the proper place to be. Yep. Yeah. And you know especially since they deprecate support for uh, what is it two versions before. Right. So like you know you don't. You alienate customers by moving too fast, so you don't really want to. You have to find that sweet spot that's right in the middle. Well, that's that's why you see on the Google for GKE, right? You have kind of early access, which gets you the one, you know, the one one eight already. But like the stable build is not one one eight; it's one one seven or one one six. So I think that you'll see maybe they'll have that available to them too. Because I mean, the one one eight code and even the one one nine code is available to you now. It's just not debugged and all that kind of stuff. So Hmm. they potentially can make that an early access thing and say, hey, we're not going to offer an SLA on this or or some other thing where they could do uh, like Google does, but uh, maybe they won't because they just feel like that's not the right way, but we'll see. But still, I think if, if they get down to 30 days post-release where they were releasing a new version of Kubernetes, I think that'd be nice. I'd be okay yeah. with that. I wouldn't even think twice about that. Like, I can't yeah. move that fast. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Uh, now you can configure ingress uh, for your applications running with the app mesh with the new virtual gateway, that allow, which allows services outside of your mesh to communicate with services inside the mesh. The virtual gateways uh, for AWS AppMesh are affiliated with the load balancer and allow you to configure ingress traffic rules using routes similar to a virtual router configuration. Of course, the virtual gateway is basically just an Envoy proxy running in an ECS cluster or in a Kubernetes cluster or on an EC2 instance. Uh, It can access all the AppMesh configuration resources that are inside the mesh, as well as terminate external TLS connections and handle all your encryption internally of the mesh. So uh, if you're looking for a way to handle ingress, this is the way to do it with the AWS AppMesh. Yeah, so the important part here is this an envoy, it's just an Envoy proxy that I don't have to manage, yes. which is the, yeah. <laughs> uh, and that's really the key. You know, a lot of Amazon networking kind of follows a very similar model, which is like you, we can all do these things with, you know, v- multiple services and technology, but I don't want to. I don't want <laughs> So do it for me. This is just another example. Yeah, so prior to AppMesh having this capability, we would do this at API Gateway. Uh, or application load balancer. Yeah. You expose the service all the way to the end. The, the, the trick is, is that an application load balancer can't be service aware like a service mesh can. So a service mesh, you can sort of natively define targets and you can do health checks and, and do more routing decisions than you get with just exposing an application load balancer target. I put everyone to sleep. No, I, no, don't. I, just, <laughs> I, just, I, was, I was giving people the space to ask another question. So that's all. Virtual recording. You guys complain that I, I push you along too fast sometimes. That's true. All right. Well, uh, about a month or two ago, they announced the CloudFormation drift detection, and we said it wasn't quite so helpful because uh, it didn't remediate the drift. And apparently someone in professional services over there heard us complain about it, and they have built a auto-remediation uh, solution starter. Uh, this is a bit of Python code, some Lambda, uh, and some CloudFormation to get this started. And it uses Lambda to do all of uh, the capabilities of auto-remediating drift. And so this is quite nice. Uh, it does have one limitation, though, that it uh, you had to basically set it up on each remediation one by one. It didn't do anything automatically. And so our friend Ian McKay 
Uh, he came out with CFN-remediate-drift, uh, which will automatically add uh, new drifts into the Lambda function, so you don't have to do that manually, which is kind of nice. Great first step to a real tool, but uh, I do hope that they come out with something a bit more productized. But for now, this is a great way to get started with auto-remediation. Uh, and I'm going to put it on place for all of Ryan's stuff to just drive him crazy every time he makes a change in the console. It'll just drift right back. <laughs> I feel like this is auto-outage. I mean, anytime you're doing auto-remediation, you have to be careful of auto-outage. Yeah. <laughs> that's definitely that's the one thing you have to be careful of. But it also helps you you know, know that your state is always what the state you think it is, which is important, too. And some, and especially in environments where change management is a really big deal. Um, you know, People going into console and making a change, that's a problem. Just like CI/CD is sort of a different way to deploy software, I think auto-remediation is an entire philosophy upon itself. Like, it's just, it causes outages, but only because you're not interfacing with the, the one path to deploying that software. And so it's an enforcement, and it does have some risk and does, you know, cause some flexibility things. But it is a, it's, you know, it's, it's also a guarantee that what you have is codified and written down somewhere versus a manual change. I agree, but when it's not built into the platform, when it's scripts outside the platform, um, you can end up with unintended consequences. Uh, example, we had auto pruning scripts and they worked flawlessly for a customer who was creating thousands of snapshots per day. Um, and then they had a use case to start um, up uh, using Snowball to get customer data. And they kept complaining to Amazon that the uh, the snowball was showing completed, but uh, the snapshots were never available. And and we found out as soon as the snapshots showed up, they weren't tagged correctly because Amazon wasn't tagging them. Amazon was putting them directly. You know, they were just being born, whereas we didn't have that problem before where snapshots were just being born by themselves. They were getting immediately deleted. <laughs> <laughs> So, I mean, I could just see where there's opportunities for these scripts to not cover edge cases, which would be scary. I think my yeah. my concern about this is that even going back to CloudFormation custom resources, which you write in as Lambda functions, there's no real way to, to authenticate who's calling you as a custom function to to decide whether or not you should act on a particular resource. I mean, so when, when you create a CloudFormation stack with a customer resource, CloudFormation will invoke your API and it will tell you to what, what to do, whether create something, delete something, modify something, whatever the case may be. But it's very difficult for you as a custom provider to know whether or not the person who's calling actually has the authority to make, it, make that particular change to that particular resource. And so, so potentially somebody else, a bad actor, could, could invoke you and say, hey, delete this thing. You don't know that it's not CloudFormation. You don't know that they have, you don't know that it's the right stack. You don't know anything. So you have to trust the caller. And so when it comes to things like auto remediation, I, I have the same concerns in that I've just built something now which can go and make changes to my production resources. And I really don't have any way of authenticating the caller. Agreed. <laughs> yeah. I just no, feel like a, it's got to be built into the platform. Point. It's got to <laughs> be built into the platform to trust it. Yeah. And then I, then I'd be 100% it. Yeah, my only counterpoint to that is what could go wrong? <laughs> <laughs> what could possibly go wrong? Nothing ever goes wrong. I don't, I don't know what you're talking. Never. All right. Well, let's move on to uh, our friends at Azure who have a, a whopping two announcements after the the drumming that Amazon gave to Google Next <laughs> on their uh, 
their announcements. Uh, and these are not to be wow. fair. And to be fair, only one of them deserves to be here anyway. So <laughs> yeah, I mean, on a normal week, we would not have talked about either of these either. But, you know, we we definitely. You wanted to give the Azure people some love. So uh, the first thing for Azure uh, is that if you're using the advanced threat protection for Azure storage, uh, you can now use that with the Azure Azure files and the Azure Data Lake Gen 2. Uh, the advanced threat protection for Azure storage provides an additional layer of security intelligence that provides alerts when it detects unusual and potentially harmful attempts to access or exploit your, exploit your storage accounts. Uh, this uses world-class algorithms that learn, profile, and detect unusual or suspicious activity in your file shares. Uh, there are actionable alerts in a centralized view in Azure Security Center with optional email notifications. Integration with Azure Sentinel for efficient threat investigation and Azure native support for Azure files with one-click enablement from the Azure portal because everyone loves to do their cloud infrastructure in the portal. <laughs> yeah, it's a problem with the Azure announcements this week. Like, all my comments are the same thing, which is giant. It's a thumbs up and neat. You know, like, that's all I got. Uh, the uh, second announcement from Azure, uh, another wow one here, is the uh, Power BI now supports Azure Maps. Uh, this is in preview. Power BI, of course, is a powerful analysis and visualization tool for reporting. And Azure Maps is a fantastic mapping tool that is not Google Maps. Uh, and if you'd like to combine the power of both of these together, you can now release uh, things like bubble layer charts, uh, real-time traffic overlays on maps, custom tiles, references, 3D bar charts, all based on geographic regions uh, in your reporting capabilities. So woo for reporting. Yeah. Bubble bubble charts. Always fun. Excellent. To the lightning round. <laughs> <laughs> to the lightning round. Yes, to the lightning round, Peter. <laughs> AWS Deep Racer, Evo, and Sensor Kit are now available for purchase. So you can buy them, but just much like the Deep Racer, it'll be like six to nine months before you can actually get it. Nope. Yeah. Maybe it'll show up. And then, and then, like a year later, you'll get some weird random email where they're like, "Hey, uh, if you haven't used your Deep Racer in like twelve months, you'll need this special unlock cable that you can <laughs> get for us for free for going to the Amazon store, then applying this coupon for two dollars to ship it to you for free." <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. I didn't know that. AWS Secrets Manager now enables you to attach resource-based policies to secrets from the AWS Secrets Manager console, and uses Zelkova to validate these policies. Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. are coming in for this one. <laughs> so Kova Accords are in effect. Yeah, no one understands this, what this announcement says. All I saw was I have to do something from the console. I mean, it's, it's actually kind of cool how you, it's basically giving you IAM permissions to the secrets management, but it allows you to do it through the console. And then Zalkova will kind of come in and actually validate these policies are valid with mathematics and massive mathematics at that and proofs. And uh, it's kind of neat, but it's, it's a bit deep <laughs> in the weeds of uh, mathematics and how it works. EC2 Image Builder can now stream logs to CloudWatch. Because before, just drop them on the floor like they didn't matter. It's a golden stream, but it's a stream at least. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and I'm not allowed to swear? Come on. <laughs> Think of the children. <laughs> Amazon Document DB with MongoDB compatibility adds support for cross-region snapshot copy. They're really not trying to make this not compatible with Mongo, right? Because, I mean, cross-region snapshot report tells me that it's not going to lose that data if the right. region goes down. So oh. that's not fe that's not feature that's parity. That's not Mongo. Okay. Yeah. It's not Mongo you can't let him win on that point twice. He's already, he's already used that one. <laughs> I, I didn't know, use yeah. it. You <laughs> used it. I just stole yours. <laughs> <laughs> but did Jonathan win on it? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I'll have to review, <laughs> the, review the notes. 
Amazon Key Spaces now enables you to back up your table data continuously using point in time recovery. I mean, if you're really using Key Spaces, you could have had all of this with Dynamo already. Like, great. Now you're in feature parity with Dynamo for this that you could have had already. You're welcome. Now you're now you're cloud neutral because it's Cassandra. But man, those features are coming slow. Amazon Athena adds support for querying Apache hoodie data sets in Amazon S3 based data lakes. I mean, I don't know about you, but I like to wear my hoodies when it's cold, not in the lake. Ooh. <sighs> I mean, I had a hoodie joke as well, but it was a little rougher. Than Go ahead. So do it. Know. Just let it out. We can always we can always edit it out. Yeah, we'll, we'll edit that one out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Label videos with Amazon SageMaker Ground Truth. Why do we put this one here? Because Jonathan said he had something. Uh, well, where's the, where's the, where's the, where's the, the yeah, the, the final. The only ground truth out, is I know is that John, the only ground truth here is that Jonathan's a liar. I'm not a liar. <laughs> it, it sounds like a service, but it's not. It's a command. It, like, it's not. They won't label videos for you. You have to do it yourself. Yeah, you have to do it yourself. Well, what, ground truth is the tool, gra- tool that lets you do it yourself. That's what a great yeah, service. Ground truth is the tool. Yeah. <laughs> That is the secret to all AI and ML is you still have to go click through and say, this is a person. This is not a person. Yeah, this I, is a cat. I saw an AI tool this that you know, basically allowed them to view documents and tag them. And I was like, really? How much time do you spend on this tool for this use case? Like, oh, a couple of months. Like, all oh, of okay. it. Yeah. <laughs> I have an idea for something I would do with that. But I mean, I think that thing could come in super handy for doing like um, deep analytics on sporting events, like doing your video analysis, like on trying to predict how a team is coaching their defense, for instance, um, by first. But I mean, first, you got to label everything right so that you can do that analysis has to know. Yeah. If only AWS had a tool that could label uh, label things in videos. Right. If only they hadn't partnered with the NFL, which has no games playing anymore. <laughs> they got no source data to work on. I know. There's a lot of video. They could, they could probably go back in time and get that. <laughs> They'll be all right for data sets. It's just labeling. Like, you know, this is a good defensive play. This is not a good defensive play. This is a safety. This is a linebacker. Watch what they do when the ball moves. Could be cool. Anyway. For like a thousand video. Yeah. No, or, it'd be millions. Would, wouldn't be uh, fun, but think about how they do it today. Right. They actually watch every minute of every play instead of having plebes tag them all and then run math on it uh, so that but that just scares me it's going to be me saying like oh this is a safety what i don't know what a safety is all the competing AI is going to get together in a bar and argue about which one was right yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah all so right it's like sports <laughs> all right guys you know i'm <laughs> I basically disqualified Jonathan early for cheating and winning in uh, the Google Next, but I, st- nice. I have to I have to give it to him for the uh, golden Son stream. Of a- Sorry, even when he's not in the contest, you <laughs> have to give it to him. I was I'm like, you know what? Tiger's the runner, and tonight Jonathan is not the runner. But <laughs> sorry, guys. Yeah. I don't know about this. I have to be I, I have to be objective here. That was. I feel like that hoodie one. I thought I had that nailed on the hoodie with the butt likes. Yeah. Yeah, I sort of like sub joked you a little bit. I ruined it for you. Sorry. No, Maybe. it was not nearly as good. Not nearly no, as good. Uh, there you go, Pete. <laughs> <laughs> for those of you who are not on video watching us, uh, he just handed him a $50 bill. <laughs> All right. Well, that's it for this week in the cloud, guys. Have a great rest of your week, and we will see you next week here at the Cloud Pod. 
Goodbye, everybody. Good night. Hasta. And that is The Week in Cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Foghorn Consulting. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and tweet us your feedback at hashtag thecloudpod. Or join our Slack channel. Go to our website, thecloudpod.net, for sign-up instructions. Mm-hmm.